As we get into Romans chapter 12, we're going to be talking about life on the altar. Have you ever noticed how so many people are afraid to give everything to Jesus? Have you met those people? Well, you know, I'd like to give him everything, but I'm afraid he's going to do it his way. Or I'd like to give the Lord everything, but he's going to take me someplace I don't want to go. And and Satan's there whispering like, if you give everything to God, and he's threatening us and he's intimidating us, and he's telling us that we're going to do crazy things if we give everything to God. And, And nothing could be less true because Satan is a liar. And he wants to intimidate us from coming into the glory and the greatness of the transformed life that God has for us. You see, God has a life-changing experience for us. I've noticed lately that life-changing seems to be the, the buzz phrase. You know, everything, this diet, this way of eating is going to change your life. You know, this deodorant is going to change your life. You know, this bug spray is going to change your life. And everything seems to be with this catchphrase, it will change your life. I've even heard people say that they went to a concert and it changed their life. You're like, seriously, a concert? I've been to a lot of concerts and I came out the same way I went in. Or a song, that song changed my life. Well, you look the same. Or a lecture. When I heard Cheryl speak, it did nothing. But some other people, they get a change of life. That lecture changed my life. Or, you know, they say, come here, so-and-so speak. It will change your life. Or a retreat. It will change your life. Or a class. It will change your life. Or a book. That book changed my life. There's only one book that can change your life, and that's the Bible. But the truth of the matter is you can only have so many life-changing experiences. You know those people that get changed every week? You know, every three days, everything they do changes them. You're like, wow, I started eating just vegetables. I'm totally changed. Great. After all, you still have the same DNA that you started with. You're the same person with the same weaknesses, the same gifts, the same likes, and the same dislikes. But people are always advocating change. We just had a president who was advocating and came on the banner of, I'm going to change America. Okay, no more comments. (laughs) But there's this idea that by trying new products or by discipline or rules or by trying harder, by giving into our emotions, we can change. That seems to be the two extremes. Either, you know, we just try harder and we we give it all we get, God, and we're going to be disciplined, and we change. Or the other thing is I just give in to the emotions, whatever I want. I, I knew a person that went on the humming diet, and she ate only the foods that hummed to her. Unfortunately, ice cream was the number one hummer. But again, there's only one way to truly be transformed, and that's to put your life on the altar to Jesus Christ. It's when you give yourself over completely to God for his purposes. When you say, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Now, Paul talks about this being our reasonable service. 
He says it's reasonable. Why is it reasonable to give your life completely to God? Well, one, it's because God wrote the manual. It's the wisest thing to do. He created us. He knows how you operate. He knows how you function. According to Matthew 6, 8, Jesus said, your heavenly father knows what you have need of. He knows everything that you need and he's already provided it or he's made the circumstances in which to provide it. Also, we have a God, according to Matthew chapter six, who loves to bless us. It's his desire to bless us. And he's a God who takes care of his creation. Jesus said, look at the birds. Look at the flowers in the field. Whenever you feel like you should maybe take control back of your own life, look at the birds. They don't store into barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. He takes care of them. Look at the flowers of the field, which today are, tomorrow are gone. Brian and I were just driving um, last week through the grapevine. And it was, you know, the grapevine's pretty ugly. No offense to those of you who, the grapevine? Yes. Through that San Fernando stretch, the Los Angeles forest, which I don't know why they call it uh, it's a forest because you're hard pressed to find one tree. But as you're driving through the grapevine, I kid you not, the hillsides were carpeted with orange and yellow poppies. It was absolutely beautiful. And I said to Brian, look at those flowers of the field, which today are and tomorrow are not. Our heavenly father clothes those hills. Do you think Solomon and all his glory was arrayed as one of these? We talk Bible sometimes. But, you know, and then Brian, because I was driving, Brian is, you know, taking pictures of the poppies because they were just so beautiful. And what a reminder that our God loves us and that he'll take care of us. So because God loves us and he wants to bless, it's reasonable to put our lives on the altar because he knows what's best for us. He knows how we function. He knows what we need. Another reason is because God knows us better than we know ourselves. According to Psalm 139, he knows our downsitting on our uprising and he's acquainted with all our ways. You don't even understand yourself, but God understands you. I have a two-story house. I go upstairs and I wonder what I'm doing there. Like I came up here for something and I know it was important at the time. And it was in my mind. In fact, I just remembered what I forgot to take downstairs right now. Because I remember going upstairs and forgetting it. So just going downstairs again. But he knows our down city uprising. He knows what we got up and what we were thinking of. He knows these things. We really don't know ourselves at all. You know, we think that if we can only get a certain thing, obtain a certain level, we'll be content. And we get that thing or we get to that level and there's still all this discontent. We get there and it's not at all what we wanted. Have you ever, I have this one salad from this one restaurant I crave, like I crave. And I, I, they opened up one. I won't tell you the name of the restaurant because they're not carrying that salad. We go all the way down there and I'm like, I want the salad. And they're like, we're not carrying it at this location. I'm like, what? Got all my friends to write in. Okay, it's Burger Lounge, and it's the Caesar salad. Just Twitter it. Just tell them you want that at the 17th Street location. It will help somebody out, like me. So it's my favorite salad. So I'm craving it, craving it, craving it. I finally get it, and I'm like, was this the taste I was craving? 
You know how that is? We finally get it and you're like, something doesn't taste the same. Because in our mind, we remember it just a little bit different. You know how we tweak things in our mind? <laughs> it's, it's, it's always like that. How many times have we been disappointed at life? Because we have these expectations about life. And if we can just get this and if I can seize control, we say things like, and I've been doing this a lot because I just turned 56. Am I too old to wear this? I went shopping with my daughters. Am I too old to wear this? And they're like, mom, don't you know how old you are? Don't you know what looks good on you? Or I say things like, how do I look? How do I look? Don't I have a mirror? I know how I look, but don't you ask, how do I look? As if you don't know. I mean, do others know how you look better than you look? Or does that sound like me? Don't you know what you said? Don't you know what your voice sounds like by now? I mean, women, we say 67,000 words a day. Don't we know what our voice sounds like? Don't we know the words that we're going to use or usually use? No, we don't. Because we really don't know ourselves. But God knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We think we need this set of circumstances. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not the right set of circumstances. Those circumstances will never motivate you the way you want to be motivated. I'm giving you these. And in the end, you'll thank me and say, God, your way is better. So God knows us better than we know ourselves. So it's our reasonable service to give ourselves entirely to God. And in this way, as we give ourselves entirely to God, because he loves us, he wants to bless us, he wants to take care of us, he knows us, and he knows what we need. In this way, the more we give ourselves to the Lord, the more we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says that the more we look at Jesus, the more we are transformed from glory to glory. The more we read about Jesus, the more we study about Jesus, the more we are becoming like Jesus. We are being transformed. Now, in Romans chapter 12, it goes on to tell us what a transformed life looks like. And as you look at this, you realize, wow, this looks like Jesus. Yes. Because as we're being transformed, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. He is transforming us into the image of his son. Ever notice how the Bible uses words like convert and transform? These are divine words. These are words that we cannot make ourselves do. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot convert ourselves. We cannot transform ourselves. This is the work that the Lord does in us. And we cooperate with that. As we look, we look at Jesus. We study Jesus. Have you ever noticed that the more you hang out with someone, the more you begin to talk like them. You begin to take on their phrases. You know, like, I was talking this morning about my dad. He used to always say, flow with it. Flow with it. So we would turn to each other like, flow with it. Because it was what we got from hanging out with Chuck. Flow with it. It's one of his favorite, favorite terms. But the more you hang out with someone, the more you begin to talk like them. The more you hang out with Jesus, the more you begin to talk like Jesus. But in the same way, the more you hang out with someone, the more you take their value system on. Have you noticed that? 
Do you have a friend who collects something? Like maybe you have a friend who collects cows. I do. Not real ones. But, you know, her floor had to be black and white because she likes Jersey cows and they're black and white. So she has a black and white kitchen floor. And she has little salt and pepper shakers that are two little cows in a little basket with a red and white kerchief. And everything is cows. Everything, you know, cow rug in her living room. Poor cow. But everything is cows. She loves beef. But I never really thought about a cow any more than something to eat or that, you know, I get cheese and butter from them cream. I never thought of that, but you know, the way she decorates with cows, all of a sudden I start noticing cows every place. Like, Oh, look, it's a cow picture. You know, it's, it's a cow tablecloth. It's a, it's a cow dish towel. And all of a sudden it's got value. Look at that cow dish towel. We have got to get that for her. That will be perfect for her. And all of a sudden it has value. You would have passed it on and go, who's into cows before? But once you look at it and you know that your friend loves that, it has value. In the same way, you know what God loves? He loves people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves people. And the more that we're around Jesus, the more we're going to talk like Jesus, we're being transformed. And the more we'll take on his value system. So in this transformation process, as we go through the rest of Romans, we are going to see how this life on the altar looks. This is what we're going to see. So in the rest of chapter 12, we're going to see life on the altar in relationship to other believers. In chapter 13, we're going to see life on the altar in relationship to the secular world. Then in chapter 14, we're going to see in relationship to Christian liberty. How do we now look at our liberties? Then we're going to see it in relationship to God. And lastly, we're going to see it it in Paul's life, in his relationship to the church in Rome. So from here on till the end of the book, we're going to be talking about the transformed life, life on the altar, because what we're going to be talking about is impossible unless you're converted by Jesus Christ, unless you're transformed by the Holy Spirit, unless your eyes are on Jesus and that transforming process is taking place. So when we're transformed, one of the first things that happens is our priorities, as we were talking about before. Our priorities are changed. Things that we didn't value, we now value. Then our pursuits are changed. The things that we used to go after and pursue and and feel like we had to have, those change. The things we want out of life change. Next, after our pursuits another P and it will come to me. I'm way, I have no idea where I am in my notes. They're somewhere. Another word with P will totally change. Our practices. Our practices will change. What we do changes. And finally, our purpose for life, our purpose for living absolutely changes. 
In Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21, Paul begins with the transformation in relationships. First, the priorities. This is how the transformed life is changed in our priorities. The things that are most important to you. Before you were transformed, your relationships were based on three priorities. Number one, what can this person do for me? How will this other person make me better, feel better? Next, it was, how do I feel when I'm with this person? How do I feel? We hang around with people that make us feel good, and we don't want to be with people who don't make us feel good. Thirdly, how do others perceive me when I'm with this person? You know, do I look good next to this person? I know, honestly, that one of the reasons I was attracted to Brian is like, he's like, when I was dating him, he was like so handsome. Women would purposely bump into him. I'm not kidding, like twice. And this one's like, oh, excuse me. I'm like, <clears throat> but I couldn't show that side. I was just like, ha, ah. <clears throat> But after we got married, <clears throat> but he was so cute. But honestly, a part of it was like, oh, maybe I look good next to him because he looks so good. You know, I have to say there was a little arrows in there. Okay, there was lots of arrows in there. But there was also agape when I was attracted to Brian. But, you know, that's what all our relationships, those were our priorities in a relationship. It was, how does, what can this person do for me? Can they advance me? Can they get me into the place I want to be? Can they put me up another rung on the ladder? Or how do I feel when I'm with this person? They make me feel good. They make me feel better about myself. They affirm me. They confirm me. Or I feel superior when I'm with this person because they're so dumb and I'm so much smarter than they are. I don't know why I always go to a Southern accent when I do things like that. My friend from South Carolina told me to stop that. (laughs) And finally, how do others perceive me when I am with this person? Those were your old criteria. But now we have a whole new set of priorities. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 through 17, Jesus said that he didn't come just to put a patch on an old garment. And he didn't come just to put new wine in an old wineskin. In other words, he didn't come just for a little self-improvement to what you already are. He came to give you a whole new set of garments and a whole new wineskin and new wine. He came to totally transform your life. So when you put your life on the altar and give it completely to God, you get a whole new set of priorities. And it begins with the priority of love. Love that is is different. It's not eros. It goes deeper than that. It's agape. And that's what he's saying. Lit, in verse 9, lit or allow agape to be without hypocrisy. I like this word lit because we kind of take these and say a to-do list. Okay, now I've got to love without hypocrisy. No hypocrisy. Was that a hypocritical thought? Got to get rid of that. Got to love. But he says lit or allow. You see, God already has the genuine love that you know, that you need. And he just wants to flow it through you. And you just have to allow God's love to flow through you. God's love is real. It's genuine. It's not faint. 
feigned. It's not fake. It's not frivolous. There is no hypocrisy because Jesus is absolute truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, we know that the Corinthians were very competitive about who had the best spiritual gift. And Paul said, I'm glad that you like, I'm paraphrasing, these spiritual gifts, but I want to show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is the way of love. And then he launched into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the way of love. And he showed that nothing in our lives, no spiritual gift, no spiritual activity has any value if it's not done in love. Love is the greatest priority of the transformed life. It's love. And as I said, when we're with Jesus, we will begin to have his values and love what he loves. And he loves people. I have to tell you something wonderful that just happened in my life. My kids knew that Brian did not want a dog. So they bought me one for my birthday. All four of my children went together on the cutest, most adorable black golden doodle you have ever seen. And I named him Barnabas. And when Brian saw him, he said, I'm not having anything to do with this dog. But guess who's dog sitting him right now? Who, guess who doesn't want him out in the rain? Guess who gets up with him every morning and says, hello, little buddy. How are you doing? Guess who had the dog on his lap today and was kissing his nozzle? Not me. But Brian knows that I love Barnabas. He's an answer to my prayers because I wanted an unconditional loving companion who'd listen to me on earth. And the Lord sent Barnabas. It, you know, I, I've never seen Brian so gone over an animal. And even his voice changes. <laughs> He doesn't even talk to me like that. But you know, he's taking on that value, what I value, what I prioritize. He now is prioritizing. It doesn't hurt that Barnabas is absolutely adorable too. And he's got these big old paws. Take him to the vet. She says, he's going to be about 80 pounds. Hmm, This ought to be interesting. A second priority is to abhor evil and cling to what is good. Even as we love Jesus and we love what Jesus loves, we are going to hate what Jesus hates. It goes together. We will abhor what he hates. And you know what Jesus hates? He hates evil because he sees the destructive force of evil. He sees that evil is the cancer of sin that defiles. It takes away the innocence of the innocent. It harms it putrefies, it pollutes, it maims, and it destroys. In Proverbs 8.13, Solomon said, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way. We will abhor evil. We will hate it. Not the people that practice it. We're going to feel sorry for them. They are victims of the evil that they have taken in. And now they can't stop it and they need a divine transformation just like we've received a divine transformation 
we're going to abhor it. We're going to abhor what it does to people. We abhor it the way it's polluting our world, the way it's putrefying our world, the way it's taking good and making good evil and evil good. And another priority will be clinging to what is good. Our transformation renewal of mind causes us to look for the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. We will get a grip on good. We will hold it. We will appreciate it. We will encourage it in others. We will point it out. Are you clinging to the good that God has given you? Are you clinging to the joy of the Lord? Are you clinging to the promises of God? Are you got a grip on him like, oh no, you can't take this promise away from me. It's my promise. I'll share, but you can't take it away. Are, are you clinging? Are, do you have such a grip on it that nobody can pry the promises of God out of your hand? Do you have such a grip on the joy of the Lord that no circumstance can spoil that? I want to hold on to the good that God has given me. God has given me a good church. God has given me a a good husband, good friends, a good family, good kids, a good dog. I want to hold on to the things that God has given me. God has given me power and love and a sound mind. Boy, do I want to hold on to those. I don't want the spirit of fear to rob me of the good things. So I want to hold on. I want to cling, just grab onto them. Following this are pursuits because pursuits follow priorities. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value, you will naturally pursue. So since love is a priority, according to verse 10, we will pursue love. We will be kindly affectionate to one another. We will give preference to one another. We will care about the feelings of others. We will consider the effect of our words and our actions on others. And we will apologize readily. We won't lag in diligence. We will be buying up the opportunities to love on others, to minister to others, to minister to the Lord himself because he's our greatest priority. We will be pursuing fervency in the spirit. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says to Timothy, stir up or agitate or fan to flame the, the gifts that are in you that were given you by the Holy Spirit. This is what it is to not lag in diligence and to pursue fervency in the Spirit. It's to constantly be stirring ourselves up. I love the way David in the Psalms speaks to himself. You know, Why are you cast down on my soul? Trust thou in God. He's never let you down. When I was a little girl, my dad used to put me to bed with Bible stories. In fact, I didn't want to do um, the prosaic prayer of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I wanted to do my own prayer. And so my dad and I sat down and we made up a prayer, like now I lay me down to sleep, that we could pray every night before we prayed the other prayer. And it even rhymed. I think I was six or seven when my dad and I came up with this. And my dad memorized that prayer. And every night he would tell me a Bible story. And he would say that prayer and I would repeat every line after him. He memorized that prayer. And I can't remember it because I never memorized it. I was such a bad kid. 
I had, I had Chuck from my dad. I didn't memorize the prayer. Can you believe it? You're like, if I had had Chuck from my dad, I'd know that prayer. Yes, you probably would, but you didn't, and I did. But, you know, I think about those Bible stories. And, you know, I go to sleep every night, and I tell myself Bible stories. That's what I do. I remind myself of what I read during the day. Because it stirs me up and it, it stirs my, the gifts of the Holy Spirit up in me. And it gives me such peace. It's so cute. We were up last week visiting two of my grandsons. One is six, one is four. The four-year-old is a chatterbox. His name is Hudson. He is so cute. Both of them are so cute. But Hudson tells Judah stories every night as they're going to sleep. Judah will say, Hudson, he's got the upper bunk, I can't sleep. And Hudson will go, all right, Judah, remember the story of, and he gets them all mixed up, but at least they're Bible stories. You know, he always mixes up Noah and Moses, you know? Moses is leading a bunch of animals across the Red Sea. It's great. <laughs> but I love the way the little brother is telling the older brother Bible stories. And, you know, we can preach to ourselves in order to stir up that fervency, not lagging in diligence. It's so good to begin every morning bringing Jesus into your day and go to sleep every night with, with bringing Jesus into your subconscious too. To just keep Jesus as the focus all through the day which really is transform practices. What we do changes. So it's not only our priorities and our pursuits, but now our practices. Because a transformed life and a life on the altar becomes about God's service, what God wants of us, what God wants to do. It's not about fulfilling myself anymore or making myself feel good, needed, or loved. It's about serving the Lord in all things, according to verse 11. And another practice, according to verse 12, is rejoicing in hope. How do we rejoice in hope? We rejoice in hope because we believe God will work all things together for good. He's got a plan even in this. No matter what you're going through, God has a plan. James says, if if you keep this in mind, you can count it all joy when you fall into a trial. You can count it joy because God's got a plan. You know, if the children of Israel had not been blocked in with the Egyptians bearing down behind them, the two hills on either side, and the Red Sea in front of them, they never would have had the miracle of God parting the sea and walking across on dry land. You see, we have to have obstacles and difficulties and deficits to see God work. That's the fodder that God does his greatest work from. He's into fixer-uppers. He's into those situations that are absolutely impossible. This is what God does. He transforms. And he wants to do that with whatever trial. So, you know, when we're on the altar, then everything that happens to us also goes on the altar. Everything. All right, Lord, here it is. It's on the altar. I've told you this before, but my friend Nancy Sylvester has this addendum that she has on the end of every prayer. Come and get yourself glory. 
So we take every situation, we put it on the altar and we say, Lord, come and get yourself glory. Here's another situation in which you can work. Here's another fixer upper. Here's another deficit. Here's a place where it's absolutely humanly impossible for anyone or anything to be done, but we give it to you. It's rejoicing in hope. We practice joy. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice according to Philippians 4.4. 4. We practice hope and we put the two together as we rejoice in hope. And only believers can have this practice. Only those who have a heavenly father who knows what they have need of can rejoice in this hope. Only those who have the assurance of heaven. I mean, isn't it great to say, well, the worst that can happen to me is I get to go to heaven. That's what Paul was saying. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst you can do to me is to send me to heaven. That's the worst you can do. Send me to glory. I get to see my grandma and my dad, my uncle Bill. That's the worst you can do to me. And my aunt Easy. that's the worst you could do to me and it's glorious. I can rejoice in hope because no matter what, it's all going to end well. With Jesus on the throne. This makes us practice patience in tribulation. We're willing to wait it out and watch God work. We're only patient if we know that the circumstance is being worked on. Do you find that? If nobody's doing anything, like uh, nobody's doing anything, like I'll say, could somebody pick that up? And nobody's picking it up. You know, before the dog chews it to bits, could somebody pick that shirt up? Nobody's doing it. I start like obsessing about the shirt. That shirt needs to be picked up. That shirt needs to be picked up. And finally I go and I just grab that shirt because nobody's picking it up off the floor. We, we seize control when we don't see anybody working. We do it for ourselves because nobody's doing it in our timetable or the way we want it done. So we seize back control. But patient in tribulation means we're willing to wait for God to work because we know he's going to work. Years ago, I was in Washington and we were doing this question and answer. And one of the questions is, what do you do when you've prayed and prayed about something and God's not doing anything? And I said, well, first of all, you get a heavenly perspective. God is doing something. God is always working and he's always working in your circumstances. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that God's not working. Going to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that it's not the things that we see that are eternal, but the things that we don't see. God is working in the unseen world. He's working on people's hearts. He's working in the atmosphere. He's working in the circumstances to bring about glory. So we are patient in tribulation. And what do we do during, what do we practice Besides patience and tribulation, we practice steadfast prayer. We keep praying and keep praying, according to verse 12. And it tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to pray without ceasing, not letting up on prayer. We pray. And then we distribute to the needs of the saints. One of the things we do as a transformed people is to take care of each other. And when it says distributing to the needs of the saints, it's not just talking about physical needs like food or raiment or shelter. It's talking about emotional needs. We listen to each other. 
spiritual needs, we pray for each other. Mental needs, we tell each other, you're not going crazy. Then we're given to hospitality. This is a spirit of hospitality that we want other believers. We want people. We, we not only welcome them, but we want them. Interestingly enough, Wednesday night, for those of you who are here, this young man comes in right around the front, sits on the floor with his hood over his head and a skateboard. You know, my first thought is, don't shoot Brian. And the wife's like, please don't shoot him. I really like him. I love that man. Don't shoot him. And you know, here he is, and there's just this darkness over him. So Brian says, well, hello there. Um, do you mind taking a seat? And the guy goes, and he moves over to a seat. And then I see him talking to the person next to him because you know what? I'm no longer listening or watching Brian. I'm watching the guy that might kill my husband, you know? I'm like, I'll take you down, you know? And so he all of a sudden gets up with his skateboard, his hood over, and he walks to the back right down the middle aisle. And Brian says, um, are, are there any pastors here that could help this young man? And he goes to the back and he's met by three Calvary pastors. And they pray with him, and the young man accepts the Lord. Yes. Not only that, he comes up afterwards. He tells Brian his testimony, and he apologizes to Brian for being a disruption and says, I really want to come here. Is that so, God? I'm like, that's like the old days. We had a lot of those when we were down on Greenville and Sunflower, a lot of those. I remember the guy that stood up in his wetsuit you know, dancing. He's now a Calvary pastor. (laughs) Given to hospitality. Isn't that cool? Then we bless even our persecutors. We don't curse. We don't say, hey, you know, there's no hope for you. There's nothing. We don't talk about them. We don't gossip. We don't demean. You know, as women, when we feel helpless, we use our mouths, don't we? You jerk. We use those mouths. You know, that's what we do. When we feel helpless, when we feel cornered, our mouth. Our mouth is our defense mechanism. And that's what Paul is saying. We don't curse. We don't use our mouth to curse people. We seek to bless because we're called, according to 1 Peter, to bless and to be a blessing. Next, we empathize with each other. We are happy for each other. We... We, we hurt when others are hurting. We pray, we agonize. And we're so happy when another person is exalted. We feel, we feel it. You know, people often think that Christianity is about being stoic, about cutting off our emotions, about not feeling. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's about feeling. It's about feeling and empathizing for each other. In fact, the feelings go deeper, so deep that only Jesus can handle them. But we feel even as Jesus feels. I remember walking through London and stupidly praying, oh Lord, let me feel what you feel for these people. And all of a sudden I felt for those people, those people that were so lost, that were just, you know, one is the loneliest number. I felt it. And I said to the Lord, I mean, it was like five minutes. I said, take this off of me. This hurts too badly. I cannot stand the thought of all these people going to hell without Jesus Christ. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to save them. Oh, Lord, you've got to come through. And it was almost as if I felt God's heart for the multitude. 
we read of Hudson Taylor who went as a missionary to China and came back to England to recruit others to go to China. And he would cry at the fact that thousands were dying without the knowledge of Jesus Christ every day in China. And he recruited a band of young men to go back with him to China to minister the gospel. We empathize. We feel as believers. We weep when others weep. And we rejoice when others are exalted. In verse 16, we practice humility. We don't have feelings of superiority to others. But we're a team. We're a team. We are all in this together and everyone is so important to Jesus. We don't value our opinion above everybody else's. We listen to each other. We're willing to change. Again, to quote Chuck Smith, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. I I was talking, I said, dad, let's write a a book of Chuckisms. That, you know, the witty things he said, he goes, nope, most of them aren't mine. I'm like, dad, blessed are the broken. I mean, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. Oh, I took that one from somebody else. So who'd you take that from? Don't remember. That's why I never say it. (laughs) Who who we got it from. Okay, we don't fight evil with evil. We don't go there. We value good and we cling to good. So we don't, we don't fight evil with evil. We don't return, you know, you did this to me, so I'm doing it back to you. You know, as Jesus said, we turn the other cheek. We walk the extra mile. We can't do that on our own without an altered life. It's got to be Jesus Christ flowing through us, transformed. In fact, don't some of these go against your nature? I mean, don't you read this and go, oh, let's be honest. I mean, at least one of these did, to you, right? Because you're going through, didn't one of these go, oh, God, no, don't make me. And he says, I'll do it through you. Just watch me work. In verse 18, we try, we endeavor to our, be our best, our best to be at peace with everyone. We, we can't make others be at peace with us, but we can practice peace. As much as depends on us. I love that. Isn't that a relief? Because David said, when I am for peace, they are for war. There are times that no matter what you say or what you do, it just makes the matter worse. This woman came up to me after the last retreat. <laughs> she had a Starbucks cup and she kept putting it in my face. What are you doing about this? You know, Starbucks, Bucks Star. You know, and she kept putting it in my, and she kept saying, pursue peace, pursue peace. And I said, I am pursuing peace. And I said, this is how I'm pursuing peace. I'm not talking about this situation to you or to anybody else. The only person I'll talk about this situation too is God because he's the only one who can work. So I refuse. I've made a covenant with God that I will not talk about this situation. I will not talk about these people. I will pursue peace because I'm going to pray for every single one of these people every single day. I've made a covenant. I don't talk about it to anybody, but I do talk about it with God. And I'm allowing room for the Holy Spirit to work in all of us. That's what I'm doing as I'm pursuing peace. Next, Paul says, we don't avenge ourselves. The transformed life on the altar doesn't seek to get vengeance. Instead of trying to get vengeance, we give vengeance over to God. We give him the right to get the debts paid. We give it to God. Lord, this is your situation. And what we do is we give God room to work. 
A few years ago, there was a situation that was getting pretty intense, and I felt very, very strongly about this situation. And I was working with a group of women, and I felt so strongly. And I have to say, I felt very strongly that I was right, okay? Not like you've never had those feelings. And this is, you know, I'm praying, and I'm seeking the Lord. And this is what the Lord spoke to me. Put your weapons down, hands in the air, and back away. And it's like, no, that's what police say. Lord, what are you saying? Put your weapons down, put your hands in the air, and back away. And do you know that was the solution for the problem? The Lord said, you put that down. You put your rightness down. You put your sword down. You put your gun down. You put whatever, you know, your mouth down. You put it right down there. And you put your hands in the air and surrender to me, and you back away from the situation. Back away and let me work. And that's exactly what God did. He worked and he did it so much um, better than I would have. And he was so much nicer than I was. And he did an incredible thing. But let me say this. Do not avenge yourself. Put that weapon down on the ground. Put your hands in the air and walk away. This is what Paul says when he's talking to Timothy. He said, I would that men everywhere would give up wrath or vengeance and doubting. And raise up holy hands to the Lord. This is the way to win the battle. Even as Moses. The battle in the valley was won. As Moses surrendered to the Lord. So we put our weapons on the ground. We put our hands in the air. And we back away. We do not deny our enemies the help they need. If they're hungry we feed them. Give them a drink. This is the practical way that we practice it. Jesus gave the example of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37. The Good Samaritan, he was the one who took care of his enemy's needs and was concerned about his enemy getting better. We are not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil by good. Jesus is good. We do it by spiritual weapons, the weapons of prayer. The weapons of surrender. We don't give in to evil, but we resist it by practicing good. I don't know about you, but I need to do something. When things get so tough, I have to do something. I, I have to go on a walk, or I have to knit a dishcloth, or you know, I just have to do something, do the dishes. My house is never so clean as when I'm stressed. But we need to get into the habit of doing good. You know, there's this thing called substitution. I've got this puppy, as you know, who loves to chew. He's at the chewing thing. And one of his favorite things is to chew on my toes, which I, you know, I don't even realize that he kind of goes down by my feet and I'm like, how sweet. And then all of a sudden you feel those little sharp puppy teeth and you're like, "Ah!" and so I was telling the vet and the vet's like substitution, give him a toy, put it in his mouth right then substitution. But this is what I'm telling you. Substitution. Evil comes, give him good. Evil comes good. They got those little puppy teeth. Give them the puppy toy. Just substitute good for evil. And in that way, I am teaching Barnabas good. We have a transformed purpose. Our lives are drastically different because we have a new purpose. And that purpose is to be on the altar to glorify Jesus. To glorify Jesus in every possible way. Not by our effort. Not by our trying harder. By but by being dead, but by giving ourselves in greater submission, greater surrender to the Lord. 
When you're not seeing these priorities, when you're not seeing these pursuits, when you're not seeing these practices in your life, it's not that you're like, I'm going to try harder. No. And it's not like you go around with each other and go, I noticed that you're not practicing hospitality. We don't use it as a checklist against each other either. If, if you do that, you've totally lost the point because you're dead. Dead people, we don't communicate with the dead, remember? No seances. This, this is not a checklist for anyone. But when you realize in your own life, what do you do? How do you remedy it? You remedy it by you go back to the altar and you say, Lord, I'm obviously, I'm not fully on the altar. I think my big toe's hanging off or my heel is hanging off or I got my fingers over here and I got to just pull it to the altar. All you have to do is pull it to the altar. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to condemn yourself like stupid hand. Get on the altar, you stupid, stupid hand. You don't have to condemn yourself. You just have to put yourself on the altar. And for those who aren't practicing it, you don't go with the list. You just pray, oh Lord, let them realize the glory of a surrendered life. Because you see, when these things are being, when these things are our priority, when these things are our pursuits, when these things are our practices, when this becomes our purpose, do you know what happens? People see our good works and they glorify our father in heaven because they recognize that it's a divine life. That's so not natural. What is wrong with them? Jesus. We've got Jesus. They notice it's divine. I'll close with this story. Um, there's a woman here, Marsh, and she comes with another lady, Linda, and they were sitting on the front row, and this young woman came and sat next to them. And they, they just introduced themselves, and she said, I'm, I'm new here. She said, I have terminal cancer. She said, when I got the diagnosis, she said, this voice spoke to me and said, you need to go to Calvary Chapel because they will love you there. And there is love there. And so she said, so I'm here. And, and you know, Marcia, and we're the love. <laughs> they just grabbed her. They loved on her. They spoke to her. They prayed over her. These things flow through us. The more we're surrendered, this is a test like how surrendered are you? And when you come to a place that's hard, the remedy is just surrender. Just surrender. Now, I noticed something. Because I've had a lot of dental work this last year. And they put you in those chairs where you can only look up. And you're like, oh, that's an interesting ceiling. I think they made that one in 1970. Or you're looking at another one. I wonder if that has asbestos. I've been studying ceilings lately. Because I realized something, when you're laying down, when you're on the altar, there's only one way you can look, and that's up. You see, we can only look up. When we're truly on the altar, our expectation is for the Lord because we're dead. We can't do anything for ourselves. So our expectation is for Jesus to work it through us and to work in us. And just as by the Spirit of God, he raised Jesus. So the Spirit of God comes into us and he raises us. And he works these marvelous, incredible, beautiful, divine things in us. It's God. It's, it's all Jesus who's doing that in us. But as we're there on the altar and we're looking up, that's when we're looking at Jesus. And that's when we're being transformed. And we won't be transformed unless we're on the altar looking up 
and looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame, all for us. You see, Jesus is the secret to this life, to relationships, healthy, beautiful, divine relationships with each other. We can know if our life is on the altar or not by whether we're letting the love of God free flow through us. And the remedy, if it's not, is just greater surrender. Lord, what area of my life have I not given to you? What area have I taken back? What area do I need to die in? That's it. It's just about giving Jesus everything. There was a song we used to sing years ago, and it went like this. I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus than I ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich and full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. That's the remedy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do not want us striving. You do not want us working. You do not want us judging one another. But Lord, you want us on the altar surrendering more and more, trusting you more and more. Because the more we're on the altar, the more we're transformed. And the more our expectation is on you alone. And the freer you are to work in our circumstances, in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we want to surrender more. Lord, those places that are resistant in us, those places where we think we know better than you, Lord, I pray first that you would forgive us and that you would work in us to surrender those places to you, that we might see the beautiful things that you want to transform, that we might be able to look at that place and say, look what God did. What is impossible to man is possible with you and with you alone. So God, let us give you all the impossible places that we might see the beauty that you give in exchange for ashes. And we ask this in Jesus' name.